Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Take your Bibles this morning. Take your Bibles. And I hope you have those with you. If you'll take those and turn to Acts chapter 3 with me. Acts chapter 3. Let's continue to look at Peter's second sermon out of Acts chapter 3. We'll begin there in the 11th verse of Acts chapter 3. And once you have found Acts 3, uh, verse number 11, if you'd stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. And let's see what he has to say to us today. It says this in Acts chapter 3, verse number 11. It starts off and says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together uh, to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's. And they were greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, <laughs> Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which you are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Father, this morning, we have so enjoyed our worship time together with you and our time with the children, our singing, Father, our Sunday school time together, our fellowship. And now, Father, as we come to the throne of grace to hear your word this morning, Father, let us enjoy this time with you as you speak to our hearts do that by focusing our attention completely on you and solely on you this morning, Father. Let us hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit as you speak to our heart. You accomplish that by making very little of me and very much of you this morning that we might see you in all of your glory. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've been in this uh, sermon of Peter's for a few weeks looking at the names at the names, as he started off here in this porch of Solomon's, his portico of Solomon's, and was standing there, he had before him the crowd that came rushing up, and they were looking at, at Peter and John, and they were saying to them, just by the gaze on their face, that, wow, you guys are really something special. You, you healed this man that we've seen sitting by the gate for some 40 years. And, and they were astonished at what Peter and John had accomplished. And immediately, Peter took the opportunity to put the focus where the focus should be, on God. Immediately put it on God. And you'll notice as it went through, he, he put it on the fact that there is this God. And this God has many aspects to him. And it's all told by the names of this God. The names of this, this God, this, the great I am. The different aspects of who he is and the different things that he has done. And, and remembrance of who this God is comes out in the Hebrew names that are used for him. And he gives six names here. And we've looked at the first uh, couple uh, in the weeks past. 
We looked at this Jesus that had come as being the suffering servant, if you remember, as Scripture tells us. These, these Jews that had, had so bum-rushed the stage, so to speak, as, as Peter and John and the former lame man stood there had, had been in search of this Messiah that would come and they would, uh, this Messiah would just, just clean out everything that was there of the Roman government and all over authorities and take over as the Messiah. They saw him as a conquering Messiah, yet Peter stood before them and said, you got it all wrong. Even even the prophets of old told you that there would come this one that would be the Messiah, and this one that would be the Messiah was was going to come to serve. If you remember, we looked at the fact that he came to serve God. He did that which God had asked him and told him to do. He was a servant of God. But not only was he a servant of God, he was a servant of man. Remember, he said that he came not to be served, but to serve. And serve he did all the way to the cross when he served us by hanging up on a cross to die for our sins. So he started out his sermon saying there, there was the one who came, this Messiah came, and he, and he came as a servant and you missed it. You missed it because you were looking for the wrong thing. So, so there was this glorified servant. But then he also said, secondly, he said not only did he come as a glorified servant, but he, he came as this exalted Jesus. Remember we looked at the name Jehoshua which tied into uh, Joshua for them. And they remember Joshua because of the Exodus and the fact that, that he was the one who took them out of, of one uh, area, this, this semblance of bondage, so to speak, this, this wandering around in the wilderness, and he took them across into the promised land, this, this deliverer. They, they, they saw this Joshua as, as a deliverer. He was one of the 12 spies that went in originally. He was one of the two that came back and said, yes, we can take it. The majority said no. The minority said yes. Guess what? God was with the minority, and he delivered them through Joshua into the land. So whenever Peter said, hey, there was one who came, this Messiah came, and you missed it. He was a, he was a suffering servant. You completely missed that. And not only did you miss it, but you missed the exalted Jesus. Your deliverer. You missed the fact that the deliverer showed up. You missed it. Well, then he moves to this, this very next name, this very next name, and it's, we're actually going to look at two together this morning very quickly, but the, the next two names are kind of connected, and it says here in a verse 14 that, that they denied the Holy One and the just. Your translation may say righteous, which is good. See, to further emphasize the, the nature of Jesus and their guilt, because in this portico, in this place of judgment of Solomon's, what Peter is doing is dumping upon them the guilt of what they have done with this Jesus. It's the same guilt that's dumped upon us when we think about what have we done with this Jesus. See, that's ultimately the question of eternal life. The ultimate question of eternal life is not what have you learned about this Jesus, not how many times have you attended church, not how many... Ladies, have you walked across the street or how many hungry people have you fed? The ultimate question at the end of the day is the same question he's dumping guilt upon them with. What have you done with this Jesus? And he says here, he says here to them that by further emphasis that there's this nature of Jesus that, that they've denied and, and there's this guilt of their, their killing this Jesus, being part of his death. And, and Peter now points out that Jesus has this very divine relationship with God. See, he's taken from suffering servant to an exalted Jesus, his deliverer. Now he says there is this divine relationship between this Jesus, whom you murdered, and this God, who you say you worship. He says that Jesus is the Holy One. The Holy One. 
This is actually a reference back to Psalm, Psalm 16:10, when he says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. See, this is a messianic statement by David speaking of the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to do and the fact that Messiah is going to die, but he's, he's not going to be left there. There's going to be this, this resurrection that's spoken of, and, and it's a messianic statement of David. It's a picture of Jesus, and it's about God's plan for Jesus to conquer death through resurrection. Aren't you glad that Jesus conquered death? You think about it. Without the resurrection from the dead, this life is useless. Life is just worthless. To still have a Savior nailed to a cross gives you what? Nothing. At the end of the day, nothing. There there would be no hope past the cross. But see, the statement that's made is there's this, this holy one, this messianic statement about his resurrection from the dead made all the way back in Psalms. Why would he reach back there? Remember who's standing before him. The ones who proclaimed to worship this, this God. And, he, and even as he went down the, the list, he was talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could have very well said the God of David. Because for them, David would have been a great name. It was one that they knew that said, a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest king they'd ever had, this ruler, this leader. And he reaches back. And not only had he said that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but by reaching back and using this in context, he's also telling them the He's, he's the God. This Jesus, even David understood. Even David understood. And the word that's used here in Acts uh, 3.14, the word that's used here for holy one is a very interesting word. It's called hagias. Hagias is the word that's used. When we think about holy one, sometimes we don't get the full picture. They would have completely understood because they would have understood the depth of the word. But what does it mean to be the holy one? What does it mean to be holy? See, if you were to translate literally the word hagias uh, into our terminology, you'd have to use a set of words to do that. And maybe you would use the words set apart for God. Or maybe you would use the word sacred unto God. See, there were a lot of things that were called holy. There were implements within the temple that were holy. There, were, uh, there was a place of holiness. If you remember, there was one who went up to a burning bush and he was told when he was standing there, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. You were standing on holy ground. It gives this picture of there being something set aside, something that is special unto God. Something that is special unto God. And this Jesus, whom they had murdered, is the one set apart for God, sacred unto God, and he's separated to God. And that's the point that he's making to them. See, it wasn't just a man. You chose the wrong man. You chose the one that God had set apart, that was sacred unto God, and was separated to God. Could you imagine the fear that ran through him as he mentioned this Hagias, this holy one. See, Peter, Peter's a great one to point this out. Because if you remember back in John 6, if you have your Bibles, which you just flip back to John 6. In John 6, the disciples are asked a question. Disciples are asked a question by Jesus, and Peter, of course, with his foot and mouth disease, is the one that steps forward and answers this question. If you remember, they, Jesus had been teaching. He'd been going around teaching about how difficult it would be to be a disciple, how, how rough the road would be, how they'd have to pick up their, their cross and follow him, how they'd have to deny their mother and their father. And they, he just painted this picture of really what it means to be a disciple in a world that doesn't love him. 
that it was going to be tough. It was going to be difficult. Life was going to be different, and it wasn't just going to be better right now, but there was hope coming. Right now was going to be a little different, but there was going to be a change coming. And he had told all of these people as he traveled around, and as we approach John 6, and we work our way down through John 6, you'll, you'll notice that the group of the disciples decided, you know what? This is a pretty tough-sounding ride. I think I'm going to go back home. They bailed out. They left. And in verse 67, in verse 67, as after Jesus had been rejected by some of the followers and all, and they had gone home, Jesus looks at the 12 who hung in there with him, and he asks this question, do you also want to go away? Have you ever had a time in your life as a Christian that things got so difficult, you ever said, I just don't know if this is worth it? I just don't know. I think about those pastors overseas that are locked up. There's one locked up now for two years. Been locked up for two years for telling people God loves them. I think about, I just heard recently, I'm not sure what city it was in. There was a man arrested at a mall because he was in America, by the way, for preaching the gospel. If you don't think it's getting close to home, you're asleep. You're asleep. There are bills being shoved through right now without you knowing anything about it in our government, locally, that will make what I do in this pulpit a crime in my lifetime. I know it will. When it gets like that, are you going to want to go away? It's the question Jesus asked him. Do you want to go away? You've heard the story. I've told you what's coming ahead. Do you want to go away? <laughs> Peter... <laughs> Lovely Peter. Peter makes a statement of truth that Jesus is, is wonderful, that he is lovely. But more importantly, he says this in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? See, no matter how difficult this Christian walk gets for me, I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go. Are you so all in? That you have nowhere else to go. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus, we're in it for the long haul. We've got nowhere else to go. But then he says these words. You have the words of eternal life. See, he understands that there is a hope. There's something at the end of the road. And he goes on to make this statement. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Redeemer, our salvation. And he says, the Son of the living God. In some translations it says, you are the Holy One of God. See, see what Peter says? <laughs> Peter says, I've got, I've got nowhere to go. And, and why would I want to? Why would I want to, Jesus? You've given me life. And you come from God. You're the Holy One. You're the set-apart one. See, Peter makes a statement of truth that Jesus is not only holy, He is the Holy One. The Holy One. Jesus, by His very nature, is holy. Jesus, being God, is holy. 
How do we know that? 1 Peter 1, 15-16. But it says, but as he called you as holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct because it is written. And again, reaches back in the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. That's, that's God. He's saying be holy because I am holy. If you believe Jesus is God, you've got to believe he's holy. So, so he's saying, yes, he's holy. Make no mistake. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is holy because he is God and God is holy. But what Peter's telling them in Acts 3, he's not simply telling them that Jesus is holy because he is God. So you know what Peter is telling them is Jesus is holy because God called him to be holy. What do I mean? God set him apart for a purpose, for a task. And why was Jesus set apart? Why, why did God set Jesus apart from all others to be holy? Remember what Jesus said, that it might come to seek and to save that which was lost, that he also might set a people apart by what he did on the cross. See, we are to be holy ones. We are to be set apart for God. That comes through what Jesus Christ did. See, see Christ was made holy that, that he might set them apart, set us apart from this world. I love what he says in John 17, I believe it's verse 15, when he says, I do not pray you should take them out of this world, but that you, that you, God, should keep them from the evil one, that you should set them apart from this world. See, when Jesus spent time with his Father praying for us, he said, I don't pray that you remove them from the world. I pray that you set them apart in the world. And see, Christ was that example for us, that we might be a set apart from that evil one. And, and he also prayed that we might be sanctified, that we might be sanctified by the truth of God's word. And also in John uh, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. See, when Jesus came to be set apart, he came to be set apart for our salvation, but he also came to be set apart for our sanctification. And it's through the truth. And you know the Bible says in John 1, 1 that he is the word. This, this Jesus is the word, the word of truth. And he came to be set apart that we might have the truth and be set apart, be different from the world, yet be in the world. See, Jesus was set apart by God so that he might set a people apart for God. You know, I find this very interesting. There are so many in the Christian world today that don't get a grasp of this holiness and this set-apartness. And and their lives, their worship, their churches, it's hard to differentiate them from the world sometimes. And I'm not talking about the music they sing or the dress they wear whenever they, they speak. All those things are between them and God and their conscience. That's their business. But there's some of the things that go on in our religious world today that it's very difficult looking from the outside in, not knowing who Jesus Christ is, to even see Jesus Christ in it. You see, we're called to be different. Not so different that we turn the world away, but so different that when people see us, they understand who Jesus Christ is. And do you know that even the demons understood who Jesus Christ was in His holiness? This, this is the part that gets me. We, we try so much not to be holy. We use words like, oh, they're holier than thou. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to be? I mean, God set us apart. Aren't we supposed to be holy? Is it a bad thing to be holy? <laughs> But see, even, even the demon said, like, uh, it was Luke, uh, Luke 4, I believe it was, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 34, I believe it is. Yes, Luke chapter 4, in verse 34, 
the, the demons there, Jesus showed up. He, he showed up in Capernaum of Galilee, and, and, and he's headed into the synagogue. And, and as he goes in, there's this one that has this unclean spirit. In verse 24, this one with the unclean spirit, out of him comes these words, let us alone. <laughs> us, one person with an unclean spirit says, let us alone. And here's what he's saying. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? So here's this man full of unclean spirits, and out of him comes his voice and says, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? He makes this statement. I know who you are. I know who you are. Who is he? The Holy One of God. Jesus, in the presence of one who is filled with unclean spirits, the unclean spirits said, We know who this man is. The Holy One of God. When's the last time you walked in a place that was full of people that didn't know Jesus Christ and they immediately knew that you were one of the Holy Ones of God? When was the last time an action that you did, not intentionally to embarrass anybody, just you going about your normal Christian walk, but a person was able to look at you that didn't know Jesus Christ and goes, there's something different about that person. There's something that that person has that I don't have. When's the last time that the unclean spirits and a person you walked past went, whoa, there's a holy one. You see, we shy away from trying to be like Christ sometimes because it makes life a little bit difficult in our world. And it should. But how awesome would it be to know that those around us that see us every day would see something so different in us that they would associate us with the Holy One, Jesus Christ, just because of our life. See, even the demons knew, even the demons knew that this Jesus, this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But even the demons knew, this man, he's the Holy Holy One of God. And Peter, he confronts the Jews before him with the fact that they denied the Holy One. And this, this is the beautiful thing because of what he's saying to them, by what he's pointing out, by the scriptures he happens to be using, he's saying this to him: Oh, you knew better than even the demons did. You knew better than Pilate, who the man was. You, you knew better than, than his disciples, those that have been saying who this man is. Oh, oh hold on a second. You knew better than God? <laughs> Who this man was? You knew better than God who Jesus was, the Holy One? See, their denial of the Holy One is no different than our denial of the Holy One today. Do you realize that? We come to church on Sunday. We put on our best. We put on a smiling face and put the world that's beat us down behind us, and we come into this place to spend an hour or so together, two hours maybe, fellowshipping together in a place that's comfortable, in a place we're welcome, in a place that we're loved. We come in and we sing praises to his name. We hear a sermon. We hear a Sunday school lesson. We, we talk about how our week's gone. And we just feel loved. We sit through Sunday school. We, we sit through the sermon that's preached. And we leave thinking we've done God a favor and made him happy. Then come Monday. Then come Monday. The day of Sunday washes off with the shower on Monday morning. And we're back to our old self. 
the next six days have no reflection of the time we spent with God on Sunday. See, our time spent worshiping the Holy One has made no difference in the other six days of our life. (laughs) And we call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves a part of the Holy One. When in fact, to do that is denying the Holy One of God. Why? God said, be holy because I am holy. He didn't say on Sunday. He said emphatically, be holy. Why? Because of God that sent His only begotten Son to hang on a cross, to die for your sins and be raised from the dead is holy. In all that we do, holiness should be the prevalence of it. From the way we rise in the morning, to the way we drive our car to work, to the way we speak to our wife and those we see in the world around us, to the thoughts that run through our mind about those we interact with every day, to the way that we spend time with God, should come out of the fact that we are seeking holiness before a holy God. If Jesus is our example, if Jesus is our example, then what does it mean to be holy? If Jesus is our example, then what does it mean to be holy? How was Jesus holy? See, think about it. Think about early on in Jesus' life. Early on in Jesus' life, he went with his family, if you remember. I think it's back in Luke chapter 2. Back in Luke chapter 2, he goes with his family. He's back uh, uh, in his hometown. They're headed back to spend a little time together uh, in, in this particular uh, town that they were from. And, <clears throat> and they had gone down with... Uh, with the family, they were uh, worshiping together. They had, had done this this Passover uh, that they did every year in Jerusalem, the, the Feast of Passover, and and uh, and it says he was about twelve years old there in, in verse uh, forty two. And it said that they had finished their days. The the Passover had been complete, and the group had gathered together to leave, and the, and they made their way up the road. Well, you remember what happened in the story? They get a little ways down the road. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? How many of you would be willing to admit you've ever lost a kid? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody? You know, you get up to go somewhere and you think everybody's together and you're numbering them out and you, you get down and you go, hold on, I'm missing one. You know, the panic, the frustration. Everybody, it's all out, hands on deck, let's find the kid. No different here. They, they, they rush back. They, they rush back to say, hey, what, what is going on? And it says, hey, They were astonished, it says in verse 47. All who heard him were astonished at what he was understanding as he said in the temple. And it says in verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this? Look, your father and I have been searching after you anxiously. They stopped the travels and let's find him. Look what he says to them, 12 years old. He says, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? At 12 years old, connect what he said to what God says about him being holy, set apart. What was his purpose? What was he there for? He says, I am here to do God's will. I'm set apart to do God's will. Even remembering John, over in John chapter 5, whenever he was spending time amongst 
all the people that he did every day, that he was wandering around and he was teaching, he was doing things, and he winds up in this, this area of the synagogue with all of the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, there in John 5. And as he's going about his day, he bumps into this, this man that is sick. And he looks at the man that is sick, if you remember the story, and he says, take up your bed and walk. That's not a bad thing on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, or Friday, or even a Sunday in their culture. This happened to be a Saturday, the Sabbath. He says, take up your bed and walk. Well, you know what happened? The religious leaders went crazy. They decided they wanted to kill him. He said, no, you can't be healing people on this Sabbath day. When the 17th verse, he says this, but Jesus answered him. He says, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. He says, you know what I've been doing and what I'm doing right now is is my father's work. So now they are really infuriated. Not only has he healed on the Sabbath, but now he's claiming that his father is God. And that God said heal on the Sabbath. Whoa. That's one of the big rules. You can't break the big rules. He just broke a big rule. Saying, I'm God's, God's my father and he told me to heal on the Sabbath. We can't have this. They were really then deciding they were going to kill him. And then in verse 19, he says this, he speaks of his equality with God. He just pours gas on the fire. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. He says, you know what? If you're really mad, look at this. There's not a thing I do that's not in the power of God. I only do it because God, my father, said do it. And he's saying, I healed on the Sabbath because God said do it. Boy, they're really infuriated now. He moves down to verse 30 and he even speaks about his authority, the same authority that he has, that God has. For he says in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He said, not only is the power that I have come from God, but the authority that I have comes from God. Boy, you can see them. The top of their head's about to blow off at this point. Here this man's healed on the Sabbath. He says he's God's son, and he says he did it in the power of God, and he had the authority from God to do it. The religious leaders are going nuts. He moves through. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but go home and look at it. He talks about the witness of himself from John the Baptist. He talks about the witness of himself through the works that he had done, such as healing that man, saying, take up your bed and walk. He talks about the witness uh, of his father down in verse 37 and 38 about who he is. If you remember when he was baptized, the dove came and the voice spoke, this is my son who I'm... I love, you know, and and then he talks about the witness of all of Scripture. And then down in verse 43, he makes this statement. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you turn a blind eye. The ones that turned a blind eye are now standing before Peter in the portico. And he said, you don't even recognize. You don't even recognize. See, the theme, the theme of Jesus' life on this earth, and was that he had come to do that which God had set him apart for. And it didn't really matter what the religious community thought. He was going to do that which God set him apart for. You may say, hey, that's fine and dandy, Pastor. He's he's God. He's God's son. He knows God's will and has the ability to do it. You ever sought out and tried to decide what is God's will for you? So many Christians wander around wondering. It's not real difficult. If you've got a pen, why don't you write these down and I'll give them to you really quick. (laughs) You see, we're called to live within the will of God. 
We're called to be right in the center of what God would have us do. It may look different externally with each Christian because we're gifted different, but the call is the same internally for each of us, the same internally. So what's God's will? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God. Doesn't get much plainer than that, does it? <laughs> Your sanctification. Your sanctification. What's to be sanctified? What does it mean to be sanctified? See, you're forgiven of your sin, and you're looking to be glorified in the end day in heaven. There's a period of time between those two things. What happens? Your sanctification. You're going to be more like Christ. You're being set apart and growing to look like you're set apart. To be sanctified. God's will for each of us is to grow as a Christian every day. To be actively involved in our growth as a Christian. To have a heart and a mind that's like Christ. You only get that by being in His Word. By sitting under teaching about His Word. By reading books about His Word. Not by looking at Facebook or watching movies on TV or listening to secular radio. You get it by being in the Word. That Word changes your heart and you're sanctified. And it says that's God's will for your life. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, it says this, Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. So what's it saying that we should be? We should be happy. We should be happy. When the tire blows out on the car, we should say, Praise God, the tire went out on the car. I hope the guy from AAA that comes ain't saved because I'm going to tell him about Jesus. We should be happy when our meal comes and it's wrong and it gives us another five minutes to interact with the waitress in a Christian-like way and say, hey, I know the meal's wrong. You know what's okay? I think I'll eat this. I'm just glad God provided something for me. It gives you that opportunity to be happy about all things instead of looking for the negative. You're looking for the positive in it. What is God doing in it? So it says, it says there, be happy, rejoice, always pray without ceasing. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's not about how you can put another person down. It's about how you can lift that person up so that he can see the cross of Jesus Christ in his life and be saved. See, a sanctified life (laughs) turns into a thanksgiving, rejoicing life. Why? Because we know God's in control of all things. But what else? (laughs) What else do we know about God's will? 1 Peter 2.15 starts off and it says, For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The will of God is so that you do good, so the ignorance of foolish men is silenced. What does this look like in our daily lives? (laughs) Paul wrote in Romans 6.22, But now, but now, having been set free from sin and having become the slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end of that? is everlasting life. See, God commands us to be holy. Paul says that that holiness should come out as fruit of holiness in our life. And what does that fruit of holiness do? What does being holy, fruitfully holy in the world do? John 15, 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. To be a disciple of Christ means you bear the fruit of holiness in your life and God is glorified. The way we walk, the way we talk, the way we act in this world should be for the glory of God. Because if it's not, it's for your own glory. And there's one who wanted his own glory instead of glorifying God. And he has a place made for him. It's called the lake of fire. It's called hell. It was... Lucifer, 
the choir director in heaven, decided he wanted the glory that God so deserved and was booted out. And all of those who don't live a life that's glorifying to God is glorifying him and will spend all of eternity in that exact same place. You see, to not bear fruit of holiness in your life is to deny the one who called you and to deny his son who died for you. But Peter, Peter not only says the holy one, he says the righteous one, and I'll be quick. And you're, in some translations it may say the just one. The word translated here for holy or just one is dikios. Dikios is the word. And it means the righteous or the just. And it speaks of judges and it speaks of, of a person who is in right standing with someone. And it's, it means especially in the sight of God. Peter was pointing them back. Peter was pointing them back to a choice there in, in Acts 3. In Acts 3, he was pointing them to a choice to make a point in this. Whenever they were given the opportunity, it says, But you denied the holy and the just one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. See, he takes them right to the point. Right to the point of decision in their life. Right to the point of decision where they could choose Jesus, or maybe say, as some of us do, not right now. They could choose Jesus or say, you know, I'm a good person. They could choose Jesus or say, I've been in church all my life. You see, they were at that point. They were at that point some of you may be at. Where you have a chance to choose Jesus, but there are a thousand other things you think are better. And you see, they reached out and, and he says, you know what? You had a choice. And even though Jesus had come to give life, you picked the murder. You, you picked the murder. Bonafide, caught in the act, locked up in the prison, murderer, you chose him. But all you'd ever seen Jesus do is, is give life. See, the people screamed for the release of a murderer over the one who had given life to the dead. They had seen it with their own eyes. Their desire to be right before God, in other words, right in their own thinking, instead of right in what God said, made them overlook the obvious. Made them overlook the obvious. Jesus, who is righteous, came to be our righteousness before God. They overlooked the obvious. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. They overlooked the fact that, that he came to put us in right standing before God. Not to murder, but to give life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, that we, might become the righteousness to God in him. See, here stood before them a choice, one who came to give righteousness and life, and one who came and murdered death. Those people, out of their pride, chose death. <laughs> and what Peter's saying to this group of Jews is, you killed your only choice. You killed your only choice. <laughs> That was your only chance, and you murdered him. He was your only way out, and you killed him. You took a killer in place of life? Acts 3.14 says they were given a choice, and they chose a murderer. 
You may be thinking, though, hey, I wasn't the one standing there. I wasn't the one at the cross. I, I wasn't the one standing before Pilate when, he hit, when the option came up. I, I didn't choose the murderer. I didn't choose the murderer. But isn't it the same choice we make today? Isn't it the same choice we make today? What Satan whispers in your ear? What Satan just comes up and he whispers in your ear and he says, boy, wouldn't that feel good? What he comes up and whispers in your ear, nobody will ever know. Nobody nobody will know that you did that. When he whispers in your ear, is that really what God meant? No. God wants you to be happy. Isn't that the choice we make when we when we hear that whisper in our ear and, and, and Satan comes and he takes uh, captive our thoughts and he leads us to do the wrong thing or to say the wrong thing or even do the right thing but for the wrong reason? Aren't we making the same choice that the Jews made? Before Pilate, when they were given life or given death or given the one who came to give life or a murder and they chose the murder, aren't, aren't we making that same choice? See, when we choose Satan over God, we're choosing a murderer. We're choosing the one who came to give death. That's all he wants to do. When we choose Satan, aren't we also showing who our father is? See, here's the scary part. Do you realize you can wear all the Christian t-shirts in the world that you want and God not be your father? You could do all the good things in the world. You could pay the way for millions of people who are starving to death and feed them. And your daddy still not be God? You see, John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. It says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Do you realize when you repetitively commit sin without it bothering your conscience or causing you to fall to your knees in repentance before a holy God, you're not showing God to be your father. You're showing more of Satan to be your father. It doesn't matter if your name's on the church roll. It doesn't matter if you laid the bricks in the building. The fruit of holiness will show who your father is. The fruit of unholiness will also show who your father is. And Satan has only come to murder. Have you ever stopped to think that when you give in to what the devil is telling you, is whispering in your ear that would be to your best interest or, or your best joy that you are choosing a murderer over a life giver? Have you ever thought that you were choosing the father of lies over truth? When we choose anything other than Jesus, anything other than Jesus, we're denying the Holy One and the just one, when we choose anything. See, sin is to deny that God is who he is and will do what he said he will do. Jesus is God. He is holy. He is just. And he has come to save you from your sins. To deny that is to deny God. It's to do it our way because we can't trust God's way. See, every time we choose to do what we want, or what we think is best, or what Satan makes look so wonderful in our eyes, we're denying 
a holy and just one. Sin's not about your actions. Sin's about your heart. Where's your heart this morning? In your heart, do you see Jesus as a set-apart holy one? Do you see him as the undeniable truth and life giver? Or is there a question? Is there a question as to whether he's the life giver for you? You see, sin's all about your heart. A heart that is focused on anything, anything other than Jesus, is a heart that denies Jesus. So this morning my question to you is, who is this Jesus to you? Is he holy? Is he set apart in your heart and in your mind? If he is, are you set apart in him? You see, he can't just be your Savior. He must also be your Lord. To be your Savior, you must recognize that you have sinned, as all of us have, and come short of the glory of God. You must recognize that that sin leads you to a place called hell, eternal death, separation from God for all of eternity. But you must also realize that God loves you so much that the gift of God is eternal life. It is eternal life. And we know that eternal life through John 3.16 is His Son because He so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should never perish but have that everlasting life. Have you chosen life this morning? Have you chosen life over death? Because to not choose Jesus means you have chosen death. I'm so thankful for Romans 5.8 when it says, God demonstrated His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For our sins. And to take that death as redemption in our sinful nature. To be made righteous in Christ. We must believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. For it's in that belief and confession that salvation resides. Have you done that this morning? Has Jesus become that central holy figure in your life? Have you been set apart in him in a world that so desperately needs him this morning. Maybe you haven't. If you hadn't, I would beg you, give me the opportunity this morning at our invitation to to share the gospel with you, to speak with you. It doesn't matter if you've sat here for 40 years. Is eternity worth the pride of being embarrassed in front of anybody that you've never really come to know Jesus? Is losing life worth that? I think not. You come this morning. Maybe you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you can honestly say that when you walk into a room of people who don't, they don't stop the things they're doing because they recognize holiness. They continue because they don't see holiness. Maybe you could say, you know what? Tomorrow morning, I'm really going to have to change some things to be an example of Jesus Christ in my life. i got good news for you. The same God that saved you from a sinful life into a life in Christ is willing to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And to think that you no longer sin just because you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior is to make the Bible a liar. We all still sin. We all still need forgiveness. We all need to repent of those things in our life. What better day than today? What better day than today so that you could start tomorrow saying, not only is my God holy, but I am striving every day to be sanctified into holiness to be just like Christ. You can start that today. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. 
We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.